So it's really important for us, I think, even just to take a step back and appreciate what it might have been like for when Matthew wrote this to those early Christians with a Jewish background, trying to come to terms with these things. And when they heard these stories told them of, of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and Jesus interacting with the woman, the Canaanite woman, what would it have been like, like for them? It's really important, obviously, to think about the context because when I was preparing this, and we, you know, in, in verse uh, one of the, I think verse twenty, you know, Jesus says, "Those uh, these aren't what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile." And I was thinking of unwashed hands as a very important thing for us to do these days, um, and it'd be awful to get away from here thinking not to wash our hands. But of course, Jesus was referring to the sort of sense of the Jewish so important with their, their sense of identity that even the act of, they had special rules and regulations to wash their hands so they could separate themselves from, from the other kind of nations um, that were around them. We pick up this story in verse 10 um, when Jesus sort of talks to the crowds briefly and then talks to the disciples. And the disciples are pretty worried. It says, this Peter says, you know, um, but Peter said to him, you know, um, the disciples approached him and said, do you not know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said, and then he, Jesus almost doubles down. Well, look, you know, they're the blind leading the blind. Um, so Jesus was having an, just before that in verses 1 to 10, it says the Pharisees came to the disciples and said, do you not know, uh, are you not concerned, disciples, that the person you follow, Jesus, is, is, is telling you to break the traditions of our elders? And one of these really important traditions was this idea of how you, if you wash your hands a certain way, not only are you physically clean, but you're kind of spiritually clean. And it's so important to do these things. And Jesus is getting kind of frustrated with the Pharisees losing the, their, their, the context or the, the get, losing their perspective. The Pharisees, um, the meaning of a word Pharisee means separated one. And they get a hard time in, in the time of Jesus. But a lot of the uh, history of Pharisees, they were quite seen as the heroes of, of Judaism. The Pharisees, um, the Jewish nation had a long history of being occupied and been trying to be culturally assimilated. You had the great Greek empire, which still culturally influences even us today, um, trying to dominate nations from 300 years before this, um, Alexander coming in and not only military occupying them, but, but more important, more subtly, um, culturally occupying their minds. The Greeks were the most sort of fanatic missionaries of, of Greek thought and Greek philosophy. And they didn't really care for this Jewish idea of, of Yahweh and putting God first. No, man, humankind, the beauty of all of us, that's what's most important. But the Pharisees really realized if we we're going to, they could see all these Jewish people being seduced by the Greek culture. So they really stood up to this and they, and and we're very strong in it. And we hear the history just before really Jesus came around, 100 years before that, the Maccabees really started, they almost, they got independence for a while. And the Roman military came in, which the Romans really had a lot of the Greek philosophy as well. So there was a history to these Pharisees that they were honored people, that they kept a separation of their identity, kept uh, the laws of God, but they almost had to put extra boundaries because they knew that the Greek culture was so dominating. We needed to sort of double down as well. But over the years, this interior passion that they had for, for God's ways and God's traditions began to sort of subtly over time, maybe for the last hundred years or so when, before Jesus came on the scene, turn into more an exterior performance. And I was reading, Eugene Peterson wrote about the Pharisees in the book, The Jesus Way. And he has this great metaphor of a window. And he asks us, the reader, to think about if you were 
owned this lovely house and he had this amazing view you know, like, like sort of whatever that view looks like. I love nature. Most of us like nature and even enjoying the, the worship there of connecting God with nature. And imagine just looking out, beautiful mountains, amazing sunsets, rivers, trees, wildlife, just but beautiful, botanic, extravagant things, this beautiful window. And then you see that one morning you wake up, you see a bit of uh, bird droppings. You're like, oh no, so you, you clean the window. Oh, that's good, that's good. But you're starting to be kind of a bit interested in the window the next day after a rainstorm, all this rain and streaks across the window. So you get the bucket out and you start cleaning the window out. Okay, yes, this is good there. Then you had pesky kids visiting you with all their sticky fingerprints on the window. You're like, oh, no, 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 this is serious now. So you begin to build a bit of scaffolding because you've got to protect this window because this view is impressive. And if this window gets dirty, oh, we won't be able to enjoy this view. But bit by bit, you begin to look at the window, not through the window. And bit by bit, you become obsessed with keeping the window clean, forgetting the purpose of a window was to bring light into your home and to give this a majestic, majestic um, view of God. And a little bit, that's what happened to the Pharisees, that they became, their attention began to shift from this majesty of who God was or who Yahweh was into house cleaning for God. And so... When Matthew's listeners, those early Christian Jews, were reading this, probably that began to hit home because we know in the early church history, this was what God was trying to do through people like Peter and Paul. He was trying to bring a new family of Gentiles, of people that had no Jewish identity, and the Jews together into a new family. I know when Zoe and me first got married, we brought our own cultural baggage, our own family baggage together to try to form a new family. And this is what was really happening for, for the early Christians as well. How do you bring what the stuff the Gentiles are bringing? How do you bring all the stuff that the Jewish guys were bringing? Some of it's just cultural quirks. Some of them are kind of important things, you know, maybe Zoe's views of how to raise children from her own family, my views, and you've got to work these things out. But often as well, we know in relationships and in families that we bring things that aren't so helpful as well. And I think some of the Jewish cultural baggage that they brought into this new family, this new kingdom, Jesus, was this sort of occupation or preoccupation with outward religious ceremony, washing your hands, circumcision, the Sabbath, um, all these sort of things. And their ethnicity was so important. And instead of that inner heart transformation, as, as Jesus mentioned in the passage. But of course, the Gentiles brought their own unhelpful baggage too. And I was thinking of this, but for us today, in this 21st century Ireland, what cultural baggage do we bring that gets in the way of our walk with Jesus, that gets in the way of God's kingdom coming from heaven to earth into our lives, into our hearts, into our homes, into our church communities? What is it that does? And I think there's a bit of the um, religious spirit of these Pharisees that are probably there that we bring. But another thing that brings us is what I would call hyper-consumerism and hyper-individualism. It is something that we are so used to. It's like we're like fish swimming in the sea of this that we don't really even notice it. And we find, and I'm not here to, well, in this, in this sermon, to be anti-capitalist. We can have a, a chat about it some other time. But what I am saying, and, and there's benefits definitely to, to, to what it brings to us, but it can have a serious negative effect on our spiritual walk and our spiritual life for God. The, the ideas that we take from just day-to-day -day experiences of living in this culture of capitalism and hyper-individual that brings us into this situation. So just like the Jewish Christians, just like the gentle Christians, we have our own stuff that can kind of influence how we try to follow Jesus. 
a book written in 1984 just came to me when I was preparing for this, to sound very intelligent. I don't think I ever really read the book, but thanks to the internet, you can Google quotes and then quote them and everyone thinks you've read it. Uh, and, uh, but I think my, I remember my dad had this book on his bookshelf. It was called by Neil Postman, a kind of sociologist at the time. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was really interested because, and I actually remember seeing this section quoted, I work in an addiction service, and actually someone had written out this kind of, kind of quote as well. It was an introduction to the book. It's really a critique of hypercapitalism. And he's reflecting on two great prophets of our time, Huxley and Oral, in Oral Road, 1984, um, Animal Farm, and Huxley wrote A Brave New World. And he was comparing these two guys. One, they were written, one of the books, 1904, kind of written in the uh, 1940s, late 1940s, and Brave New World was written in the 1930s. These were kind of negative prophecies that were going down the tube in Western world. And these are the things that could happen. And Neil Postman is reflecting on this. Um, again, this is 30, 30 plus years ago, 35 years ago that he wrote this. So I'll read this out and excuse if it's a little bit long. I think it's very interesting. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, I like to think I'm that. Huxley and Oral did not prophesy the same thing. Oral warns that we become, that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no brig brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he sought, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undid their capacities to think. What Oral feared were those who would ban books, but what Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Oral feared those who would deprive us of information, but Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we'd be reduced to passivity and egoism. The love of knowledge. Oral feared that the truth would be concealed from us, but Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. And Oral feared we would become a captive culture, while Huxley feared we'd become a trivial culture. In short, Oral feared that, we, that what we fear will ruin us, and Huxley feared that what we would desire will ruin us. And Postman says that this book he's written is about the possibility that Huxley, not Oral, was right that this sense of hyper-capitalism and hyper-individualism would seduce us and impact us in the way we live or walk with God. And a while ago, this reminded me as well, when I was preparing for this, of a friend of our church, a good friend of Rob Jones, a guy called John Tyson, a great um, missionary, a great man of God who works in New York City. And he was been thinking about how culture and how capitalism can impact us in various different ways. And he just talked about... We don't really notice it, but if you notice anyone, and I do it as all the time, when you come to church, rarely does a person enter church thinking, how can I honor these people as better than myself? Or I wonder what ministries are struggling so I can use my gifts to help build up others. Instead, most of us come with a subconscious rating and review system, critique system, a consumer system. We evaluate, we grade and critique what the service is like, what the sermon is like, what the music is like, how the welcome is, what can I get from this? You know, and obviously sometimes that's relevant in certain parts of our lives, but in a kind of church community, the kingdom of God, that is, can be really unhealthy and really unhelpful. We become obsessed with the window, like the Pharisees. How cool was the sermon? How cool was this window? That, but, you know, and I was thinking sometimes I spend too much time on the window, where I sometimes imagine if maybe purposes I would prepare a bad sermon just to get you guys 
thinking and say, well, that wasn't very good, but the purpose is to not look. The sermon is only a window into what God wants to speak to you today. We get so obsessed with these things. And so we read something in the second passage, this Canaanite woman. I got very excited when I began to see that this Canaanite woman, this mindset that she brings to interacting with Jesus is a mindset that can, be, can help us be an antidote to this way of living. So what do we, can we learn from this woman? Well, first thing I know is that she comes back to Jesus four times. Each time, it's like she's been rebuked in subtle ways. She comes crying out for help for her daughter who's so unwell, who's demon-possessed. And the first thing she experiences is that Jesus doesn't say anything. And the second thing she experiences is that his disciples tell Jesus to tell her to go away. Third thing, Jesus says, look, you're not my priority. And fourth thing, Jesus says, look, you're, you're not that important, but she keeps going, she keeps going. She is desperate and she perseveres. We live in a world of instant gratification. For many years now, we've lived off credit and that becomes normal. Credit rating is so low, why not? We want download speeds. We hate that little circle that goes buffering. Ah, oh, we want the thing downloaded quickly. We want free trials. When I order food, all I have to do is even just press my fingerprint on the phone now because it has everything down. It's quick, it's quick. One touch pay, instant messaging. This mindset can seep us into the way our relationship with God, that we can see God primarily as a supplier for a once and he'll supply them quickly rather than a mysterious being who's called us to struggle with him, to wrestle with him to seek him, to ask on the door, to knock on the door, to seek him out, to know him. And Jesus refers to the house of Israel. And I love this idea that Israel, the name Israel, came from when God wrestled with Jacob and when Jacob wrestled with Israel, when, when Jacob wrestled with God. And God said, I'm going to call the people I'm going to call, the people that I want to be a light to all the world, this is the name I'm going to call them, the one who wrestles with God. He says this, you know, in Genesis, he says, give me a blessing now. No, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And I felt this is the woman, the Canaanite woman. I won't let you go, God. I won't let you go. Well, in the consumer kind of mindset, we can say, give me a blessing now. Or I'm out of here. I'm going to let go and find something else. You know, church, you know, I don't know about church. I, like, if I don't get what I get now, I'm going to get out of here. Bible, I don't know about that. It doesn't really appeal to me quite quickly. Prayer, I've tried prayer. It doesn't really work. I don't know really anything about it. But God wants us to wrestle with these things. And James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face many trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance means strength. It means solidness. And perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is not that interested in supplying all our wants. He is interested in our growth. He is interested to say, this is a man, this is a woman of great faith, as he said to this woman, a Canaanite woman, a woman of a Gentile origin. He was able to say at the end, through this process of this woman wrestling with God. Wrestling's difficult, Wrestling's hard. But I think I've learned in my life that it's the way to be. What is our relationship like towards these things, towards church community, towards a prayer life, 
you know, with Scripture. I wrestle with the Bible. There's things I don't like about it, things I don't find I agree with, but I wrestle with it. I'm not going to just put it down and say, that's not for me. Church, oh my goodness, church wrecks my head half the time. Not church small C and a big C, but I'm here to wrestle with this. I'm going to hold on to this. It's really interesting with wrestling. Um, my young girls, Lane and Phoebe, love wrestling with me every night. And there's loads of research done in psychology and behavioral science that wrestling creates great growth for a child in their development, that rough and tough play. You know, wrestling with God brings us intimacy. I don't know about you guys when you've gone through difficult times, but the consumer mindset just says, just give up. It's not worth it. But someone who has faith says, I'm going to stick for the long run. I'm going to wrestle with God. And through the wrestling, we can be intimate with God. Wrestling gives us wisdom. You know, they say with, with children, when they wrestle with a, with a parent who they can trust, they learn to know the boundaries of what they can do, what they can't do. And they learn to kind of give or take. They learn what it means to win and to lose. But it brings through wisdom of how they interact with life. Wrestling with God will give us wisdom. And wrestling with God will give us strength. And I see why Jesus says that this woman was a woman of great faith, because in a way, faith is saying that the wrestle is worth it. You know, there was times when the disciples were wondering, like, is it even worth it? And there was a time where loads of people left Jesus, and Jesus says, well, what are you guys going to do? Are you going to leave too? He said, look, Jesus, only you have the words of eternal life, you know? You're worth the wrestle. So this woman reminds us that perseverance desperation, not instant gratification is the way we need to interact with God. Another aspect that we see from this woman is incredible gratefulness, this image of a table full of plenty as we pray there that for, to forgive us that we have got so much. As Western Christians, we have so much access to good context, so much information. Our tables are piled high with food for us to consume. Yet this woman... Her hunger, desperation, she just needed a crumb. She just needed something. Because we can be full of all the things of our mind, but she knew a crumb would be enough if it went to her heart as we sang. And in my work, I noticed the difference between someone who comes in to get into recovery from addiction. The ones that I think do well are the ones that don't grumble and blame. They have to come and go, oh, look, the hospital's this way, or there's this problem, or that staff isn't great, or I don't know about that. But there's also ones that come in and are just like so thankful I got a chance to turn my life around. And with a toxic sense of entitlement because that's what consumerism has told us, has taught us, we deserve this, we can have this. If we have the right transaction, we can get this, we can get that, we can do this. This is all about me. But this woman was so grateful, so humble. And I wonder what the disciples listening in thinking, well, are we the ones, the privileged Jews, sitting on that table full of all this privilege? And, and are we even just taking this for granted? And the final one is just a selflessness. Again, as we prayed, that this woman came not for herself, but for her daughter, for her future, for her family. And there's this idea, another social commentary guy, I think someone, man, said that this idea, the sovereignty of self, self is important, self-compassion, self-care. Without these, we can't really love fully well. But if we put self at the sovereignty of it all, as the biggest or ultimate thing, I don't think that's the way Jesus lived. I don't think it's the way Jesus called us. It's when we follow Jesus, he'll tell us, he'll teach us the ways to go. As, we, as I think Peter shared in the testimonies the other week, you know, he'll give us the, the, the burdens that we can bear. He will guide us through these things. 
So this desperateness, this perseverance, this wrestling, this gratefulness, this selflessness, this vision that this woman had can teach us so much, I think, today in our 21st century of our spiritual lives with Jesus. So just as we end, and I'll invite Sherry up, if that's okay, just to pray for a minute as you're listening online or later on today or this week or even now in the room here. Just pray that the Spirit would highlight to us all individually. It might be something I've said in my window of how I framed it, or it might have been nothing to do with my window, but it might just been something that the Spirit is speaking to you in other ways this morning. But it might have been something about the character or attitude of this Canaanite woman. Maybe to remind you of the wrestling and the importance to just not tap out, but to get in back in there. Father, pray for fresh faith for all of us. We say faith's a gift as well as a faith to something that we can work on and add on. I pray for faith to keep us in there. I pray during this pandemic times that maybe some of these windows that we've sort of put up on a pedestal is an opportunity now to put them down and get to the heart of the matter, the heart of our situation. It brings us back to our home life, our family life. And in the wrestling of the unknowns, may you build strength in us May you build wisdom in us as a people. May you build an intimacy with one another and with you, Father. And may we, when this pandemic eases or moves on, who knows when that is, may we come back stronger, come back with deeper faith for you, Jesus, a deeper love for humanity. Give us that desperation. As a deer pants for water, so much so longs for you pray and forgive me, forgive our apathy, forgive us just a whatever attitude. Holy Spirit, give us that holy discontent fresh to go deep with you, with our heart, in our homes. And as we pray and as we spend these last few minutes, even just don't expect instant gratification, don't expect that God's going to sort everything out even the next five minutes, but allow the Spirit guide and walk with you this week.